welcome to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Limcooler, Extension Beef Cattle Specialist at the University of Kentucky. Through the Beef Bits Podcast, we will share current news, management tips, new research, and other issues related to beef cattle production. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on beef cattle topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast and find the information useful. Welcome back to another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. Uh, again, this week, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Greg Renfro, who's our extension meat specialist. And uh, before that was a, a meat cutter and has quite a bit of experience in this segment of the industry. Greg, welcome. It's good to be back. Yeah, I've uh, been doing this for about 32, 33 years. It was supposed to be a part-time ironically turned into a career <laughs> it's amazing how you get sucked into something like that right it is it really is and my dad as an ag teacher that's what he used to tell his students is never discount that part-time job you never know that's a really good point and um, you know you've gone from being the uh the cutter to teaching uh cutters mm-hmm. as well you do some uh, meat cutting schools for uh, some of the uh, folks, uh, tell us just a little bit about some of those. Yeah, we, we usually target those uh, beef and pork processing workshops for the uh, late spring, early summer. And the reason why we do that is, you know, basically there's more room on campus. You know, uh, we keep them here uh, at the meat lab and let, try to give them as much hands-on as we can. And and it kind of dovetails nicely into what we're going to talk about today is, I'm getting more and more emails of people. Just just while we were setting up, there was two emails that came in about folks wanting to take the class because it's getting to be more and more of a challenge to get your animals into a processing facility. And so folks just wanting to learn how to do it themselves. And so, you know, hopefully things look nice uh, for the spring as now we see Pfizer's got about a 90% uh, success rate on their uh, their uh, uh, vaccine. I seen where UK started human trials on their vaccine as well this uh, this week. So hopefully, hopefully these things will kind of calm down and we can do these uh, workshops uh, this spring. That's interesting. So you're you're getting interest from those that want to do it at home. Yeah, it, it, that's what I'm in, interpreting it to be. I, I'm still getting interest from those that uh, want to start their own meat processing facility and and uh but yeah there's a lot of folks just wanting to learn it at home as well it started out as just being you know some meat processors and then others that were you know i guess i I forget the exact phrase but kind of a vocation vacation type thing where they were you know wanting to learn something new and it was part of their vacation experience so so but now we're starting to get more of the, the uh, interest in the at-home people doing it. Uh, that's, that's a positive, though, when we think mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, just overall meat demand. I mean, somebody's got to raise those animals up to get them to that point. So that's a, that's a plus, too. Yep. I, I thought what we would do, uh, Dr. Renfro, is pick up where we kind of left off last time. And we were just kind of wrapping up on uh, when we're looking at selecting a butcher uh, thinking about shrink time with uh, our shrink loss with the time in the coolers. And we just kind of breezed over this idea of, you know, what you take on an animal is not what you're going to bring home. 
So give us a quick rundown on what some of those numbers might look like. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I would venture to say any extension meat specialist throughout the country gets this question often is, you know, you know, what can I expect? Or I took a 1,200-pound animal into the process or I only got 300 pounds of meat, that kind of stuff. Um, usually, I, I tell folks from a live weight standpoint, so if you are a farmer and you take your own beef in or if you're bought a beef off of a farmer or something like that, that you're you're going to take home about 30 to 35% of that live weight. It's going to go home to your, your freezer. And... Uh, that I wish I could give you a hard and fast number, but there's so many things that go into that. You know, for example, you know, when did you take that live weight? You know, you, you know, as well as I do, if you leave those cattle off feed 24 hours, they can lose a hundred pounds just emptying up that digestive tract. Uh, so if you took it when it was full, you know, had a full rumen, you know, then that live weight's going to be, a little skewed and, and so on. And if, you know, you can't all, you, you can never discount the ability of the meat cut as well. Uh, you know, Brock Billingsley, our meat lab manager, you know, he, I taught him how to cut meat, then he went out and did it his own. And, you know, so my DNA of teachings in there, but I, there's no doubt in my mind that you could give us a side of beef and, he take one side and I take the other, adjust for weight that we would come out probably 20 to 30 pounds different simply because I kept something that he didn't and so on and so forth. And so there's a lot of different things that go in that. And then the, the biggest question we always get is, it seems that all be ground beef. Yeah, that happens. <laughs> That's right. If you're going to try to maximize the yield off of a carcass, you get a lot of trim. You get a lot of trim. And and especially, you know, uh, I think you and I personally talked about this is if you're one of those individuals that can actually uh, choose what type of ground beef you want, whether you want an 80, 20 or 90, 10, that's going to affect how much you take home as well. Uh, so, you know, you, there's a lot of different things to consider when you get into this. And the other one that we don't think about is uh, if you do bone in or um, bone less cuts, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know that you know from a carcass weight standpoint, that skeleton is roughly around twenty percent of that carcass weight. Uh, again, that's not a hard and fast you know number as well because uh, you know nowadays you know people get our farm local farmers get real nervous when an animal gets eleven hundred, twelve hundred pounds. You know, when in the industry, you know as well as I do, you're talking 1,500 plus, almost 1,600 pounds. And so, I, you know, like we talked about during the whole COVID and, and, uh, and uh, you know, meat processing challenges we had back in the uh, spring, uh, we actually have developed these animals that they're, they're, they're NASCARs. They, they run fast. They grow fast, you know. And we did the same with our meat processors. They, they, they processed a lot of cattle at once, you know, and when one or both of those uh, situations kind of bogged down because of COVID, that's, that's the, the issue we have, you know. And so, you know, I'm sure this is what sparked your, your interest in, you know, doing a podcast on this kind of stuff is that we did have a lot of farmers out there with animals that, we're ready to go. I know I sent people your way saying, how do I slow them down? You know, and that's, that's, that's a challenge. And so 
if we have animals that are designed to be that fast growing and we're doing our own freezer beef, we take them off and we harvest them about 1,200 pounds, then you're leaving some growth on there. So that skeletal uh, weight's going to fluctuate as well. As yeah. So, so, you know, really when, when you're taking that 1200 pound beef to the uh, processor, you can expect 350 to 400 pounds to take home plus or yeah. minus 50 pounds almost. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, I always get the question of well, how many ribeyes was I supposed to get, you know, I can tell you from years and years of cutting ribeyes and strips and all that stuff, you know, if, if you have everything cut about an inch thick, you're only talking about maybe 10 to 12 ribeye steaks per side. So you're only talking about 20 to 22, 24 total ribeyes, you know, then you can say that about your strip steaks as well, uh, that you're going to get about that as well. And so I know that sounds a little disheartening for folks. They want more, you know, and, and, you know, the only way you get more is if you cut them thinner, you know, and then people are upset because they're too thin. So it's a yin and a yang type thing. And and most places uh, will allow you to select your thickness, right? A half inch, three quarter inch. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and uh, uh, they'll let you, you know, select the thickness on not only your steaks, but the size of your roasts as well. Uh, usually when you go in there, you know, they have a set cut sheet that they have you fill out. And, and that's one of those things that I always tell folks, it's as much your responsibility as it is the meat processor's responsibility to explain that to you. Sometimes dealing with meat processors, they we kind of speak our own language and we just naturally assume everybody understands it. Kind of like, you know, our IT guy, he comes in to fix my computer. I know he's speaking English, but I don't understand a word he's saying, you know. And that's kind of what it is like when you go to a meat processor. And so don't be afraid to ask questions. And they, they should be willing to sit down and explain things to you so you know exactly what you're doing. You know, that I got caught in that uh, even this year. And, and I've done cut sheets before, but um, I had a term that I had not seen before. And it was a uh, an English roast. English roast, yeah. Yeah, there's... <laughs> There's a bunch of those out there, English roast, uh, Swiss steak, uh, 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 club uh, steak, club steaks. Yeah, there's a bunch of those uh, different uh, nomenclatures, I guess, is the best way to put it. And each processor or each meat cutter will have a def different definition of what that is. You know, like your English roast, I've seen that as a bone-in arm steak. You know, our arm roast, you'd say. Uh, the uh, the uh, 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 club steak you had in there, I've seen that go back and forth with several different cuts. Yeah. London broil. Yep. London broil, when I was first coming up, I thought London broil was a thick cut top round steak. Come find out London broil is a, a recipe is what it is. And for some reason we have that. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, you go out towards Colorado and, and they don't have rump roast, but they have Pike's Peak roasts. And uh, where you and I went to graduate school in Missouri, I don't know if you ever noticed, you didn't really see any New York strips there. Saw a lot of Kansas City strips, but you didn't see any New York strips. <laughs> exactly right. And we always gave the restaurants a hard time when we went and there was a New York strip on the menu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Missourians are pretty proud of their uh, their heritage there in Kansas City in the uh, in the state lines. So this discussion is is a great lead in to kind of this next concept of thinking about doing your homework and and looking at some cut sheets and then trying to get a feel for whether or not some of the value added cuts uh, like the flat iron and that is going to be available to you. And how would you approach a butcher shop when it comes to looking at some of those value added cuts? Because you're giving something else up to get those, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the, what I've come across with some of our meat processors that they're willing to learn some of these new cuts and then they see how much time it takes to do them. That, I'd, I'd have to say as, as excited as I am of, of these new beef cuts, I believe the Beef Council calls them BAM cuts, beef alternative merchandising. Uh, they do require a lot more labor to dig those out of the carcass. And some of your processors are a little bit more open to that. And some of them may not even know what a flat iron is or a Denver cut or a San Antonio state. They may not know that. And if you go in and ask that kind of stuff, uh, chances are they're probably not going to, you know, know how to cut it or even, you know, work with it on that. But it didn't hurt to ask, you know, it didn't really hurt to ask on that kind of stuff. And, and maybe more so if you're doing more sales of like, uh, packaged meat or some kind of box meat to uh, farmers markets or whatever, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, you and I have worked with some of these direct marketers in the past, and and they're looking to get as much yield out of those carcasses as they can. And so uh, I, I can think of one in particular that uh, we work a lot with him and work a lot with his processor to get some of these new cuts that he was looking for. And it, it worked out really well for him because it allowed him to, to provide something to his customers that, that others didn't, you know. And so uh, they're out there, you know, uh, hopefully you get an open-minded enough processor to say, if, he, if he's honest and says, I don't know how to cut it, I'll be more than happy to show up and, and teach him how to cut those steaks. So now we've kind of gone through uh, this whole concept of the different cuts, but then once we've got it cut, there are also different options for packaging. And that's something that uh, may vary from butcher shop to butcher shop. And go through a little bit about some of those options that we have when it comes to packaging this meat. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, I think what everybody's familiar with, you know, if you shop in the grocery store, call a PVC overwrapper, a polyvinyl chloride film. It's an oxygen permeable plastic, so to speak. And it allows your your retail grocery store to be able to display that product to you, the consumer, where you can visually see it. It allows enough oxygen in there to bind with the myoglobin molecule to brighten that up to that nice cherry red color that you see. That's really wonderful for display issues in you know at uh, a grocery store, but it doesn't work very well if you're for long-term storage. You can freeze that stuff, and I do it myself, but I know it's only going to be a few weeks that it can be frozen because it is oxygen permeable. Same thing with you know, a lot of your meat processors will have freezer paper, all right? Freezer paper works wonderful for short-term storage, but if oxygen surface, you're going to get a lot more freezer burn in that type of product. You know, like like we talked about, if you're getting, you know, 
with your own beef process, you're 350 pounds of meat. For some of us, that's a year's supply, you know, and you want that last steak out of that freezer to taste just like that first steak that went into the freezer. Well, the only technology we have available to us that it's going to allow that is vacuum packaging, where it goes in a thick plastic uh, uh, container or envelope, so to speak. Vacuum gets pulled on it, keeps the oxygen from getting to the surface. As long as that vacuum's intact, that 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 product will stay in the freezer for for a long, long time, and it will allow you to when you take that you know three hundred and fiftieth pound out of there to taste just like the first pound. And and so often vacuum packaging may be a little bit more than paper wrap. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think we're slowly getting to where we're we're abandoning the the freezer paper wrap. But yeah, even if it does cost a little bit more, it is so so worth it worth it in the in the long run. And then um, some of the different things to watch on vacuum packaging too from different processors may be on examples like T-bone steaks where there's the chance of bone cutting that packaging. Is there different strategies that butchers use on that? Yeah, yeah there's a couple of things that, that you can do. You you can buy vacuum bags that have the, what we call bone guard. Uh, they're really thick plastic uh, uh, walls on those vacuum packages that, that it's very difficult for a bone when they're pulling the vacuum for it to bust through there. Other times they'll they'll take the bone guard and they'll you know it's it's kind of like duct tape it comes in a big roll and they can peel off what they want and wrap around the bone and so on to do that. Um, if your meat processor doesn't do that, you can ask for that on your boning cuts because even though the vacuum may look intact, there's probably a pinhole in there and eventually you know, air oxygen is going to get in there. So you need to ask to have that bone guard if you're getting boning cuts. You know, some folks don't like boning cuts, and so that's that's a, that's a moot point from there. Uh, but if you do get the boning cuts, I would ask for the bone guard to put on there. Good point. One of the, the last things to kind of think about and consider is uh, you mentioned the percentage of, of fat in the ground beef product. and so. Some processors may give you that option. Some processors may not give you the option to think about 90-10 or 80-20 or 70-30. Yeah, it's uh, most processors are probably going to target a 70-30 to an 80-20. And part of the reason why they do that is is they don't want those phone calls of being accused of stealing their meat or anything, your meat or anything like that. So they'll go for the fatter one, which is going to take your yield up there. Uh, you have to just realize that if you're wanting a 90-10 ground beef, your yield's going to go down. And and uh, someone even gave you the option. They just call it ground beef, and they're going to shoot somewhere between that 70 to 80% and, and leave it at that. So uh, just keep that in mind. If, you're, if you want the leaner ground beef, your yield's going to go down. That's a really good thing to, to kind of consider because the other option that most of the processors will provide you is if you want patties made. And that then takes a little bit different uh, approach too. Because, well, I shouldn't say different approach, but a little bit more fat in a patty is probably going to be a little bit better burger at the end. 
Exactly. You know, I, I jokingly say, you know, we as Americans, we like the flavor of fat. You know, we fry things in fat. Yeah, an Oreo is good, but a deep-fried Oreo at State Fair is really good. You know, and <laughs> the ground beef patties, you know. Uh, and, and, and to be honest with you as well, you know, not only from a flavor standpoint, but when you're grilling them, you don't want them to stick, you know, and that's going to help them uh, not uh, to stick to the, the skillet or your grill or something like that. And, you know, be aware that sometimes the patty machine technology we use will will kind of pack it a little bit too tight and you get what we call cupping. Uh, the best way I can describe that, if you have like a, a, a more economical pepperoni pizza and you cook the pepperoni pizza and your pepperoni kind of cups up, you know, that's what we're talking about there. So just be just be aware that that can happen as well. So. Some of our processors are putting in uh, better patty machines that, that make it look more like a handmade patty versus just your your traditional what I would call the school lunch you know, hamburger patty. And and one other thing to think about when picking a processor that um, is maybe a little bit newer with all the cooking shows and that that are out there, and um, it's the bones, right? Because Potential differences on what processors may do with bones? Yeah, uh, you know, bones are, it's kind of interesting with bones. Uh, uh, Rock down in the butcher shop, he's gotten to the point where it used to be he would he would cut out the long bones, like the femurs and the tibias and fibias and the humerus. And, and he would he would cut those, and if people asked for them, he'd give them to them, then he I think he put them out there for like 25 cents and sold out. And I think he's got like two or three dollars on him. Still can't keep them off in stock. Uh, folks are very interested in bones now for the bone broth and that kind of stuff there. And you're absolutely right. It goes back to people see something on TV and some chef will do bone broth and then everybody wants to do it. My, my favorite one is this thing called the hanging tender. And it, it basically, without being, you know, having an illustration in front of me, it's where the diaphragm comes around to the backbone and, and comes down. And I, I can remember when I was on the meat judging team at the University of Illinois back in the uh, late 90s, um, I would see a guy standing there and all he did all day long is as the carcass go by, he cut those hanging tenders off and throw them in a combo. And I used to think he must have been late for work, and that was his punishment to do that. <laughs> and but somebody on the Food Network cooked with one of those, and it became the rage. Everybody wanted hanging tenders, and it's still that way today. And it goes back to like you said: people see something on a cooking show, and then they want it. Yeah. Well, Greg, I think we've gone through just about all the basics on the issues and things to think about when you're selecting the processor? Are there any other considerations that you would have for folks as they're looking at picking a processor? Yeah, you know, I think we talked about last time, location is always the big thing. Um, uh, you got to realize that uh, if you are wanting to get in direct marketing, you have to be USDA inspected. Um, I think the big thing you can do is when you walk into a meat processor, is if they have cuts on display, look at those because that's going to be what you get back as their kind of their skill set there. And don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, uh, like I said earlier, 
it's like me talking to our IT guy. I know he's speaking English. I just don't know what he's saying. That's kind of the same thing with meat processors. You know, you'll you'll hear words like yield and retail cut and you know how much fat you want and trim, and you you know those words, but you don't exactly know what they mean. And so don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, that's the big thing I tell folks is if you don't understand, ask. Particularly, you mentioned it a while ago with a cut sheet. They likely have a standard cut sheet. And mm-hmm. if you don't know what the size of a roast is going to be out of a standard cut, just ask them to show you one that's in the freezer, right? Uh, we get a question a lot of times is how much, if you're have, having a party, especially now we're getting close to the holidays, you know, if we're having a party, how much meat do I need per person? And usually I tell folks on a raw basis, it's roughly around a half person, half pound per person raw. If it's cooked, you usually go around a quarter of a pound per person on that. And so if you have a family like mine where there's just myself, my, my wife, and my daughter, a two-pound roast is going to feed us with some leftovers, you know. If it's a larger family, you may have to go to, you know, a three-pound roast or something along those lines. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The roast size can really throw people off, you know, because uh, – uh, you know, if it's just, you know, you and your wife, you know, you definitely don't need a three-pound roast unless you're fond of leftovers. That, that's right. Or you got a big Instapot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's one thing I think Alan, Allison Smith at the Beef Council does a really good job of, of teaching people what to do with their leftovers. And sometimes the leftovers are better than the uh, actual, actual first time you had it type stuff, so. Seems like that seasoning and flavor just soaks in a little bit it, better. It does, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when she, she was pushing this thing called the beef sundae. Uh, if you remember that, it was the mashed potatoes and you put the shredded roast on top of it and then cheese and then you put a little cherry tomato on top as a uh, garnish. I'm not for sure what more you want out of life. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Uh, well, Dr. Renfro, this has been great discussion again this week, and um, I think this will really help folks uh, kind of make those decisions and, if nothing else, have a better understanding of some of the things to be prepared to ask of their cutter when they go in and talk to them about building a relationship to getting the beef processed in the future. Absolutely. And if anybody has any questions, please feel free to give me a call, shoot me an email, something along those lines. We'll make sure we get you questions answered and help you out any way we can thank you for joining us again for another episode of the beef bits podcast i hope you found this information shared by dr greg renfro my colleague useful on things to consider when selecting a meat processor we've been a little bit off schedule but uh, we've got a research project that started that's kept us busy the last couple weeks and we are at the end of the semester students are wrapping up and we have a uh, program where the students actually give presentations and we've been working hard with them to get those presentations ready and delivering those presentations but we'll be back to a more routine schedule here real soon and and i look forward to any feedback and we hope you tune in for the next episode take care